Hello, my name is Gary Conahan, and welcome to the Beautiful Tension Podcast. This podcast is about stories. From queer folks and allies to spiritual folks, we talk about a lot of things, from faith to queerness and so much more. Whether this is your first time listening or you've been here before, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for tuning in. This is season two, episode four. Today I'm talking with Abby Kapuk, pronouns she, her. Abby is a white female wife, sister, aunt, and independent consultant. From working in a drug and rehab center in Chicago to receiving her degree in social work, she's since moved to Portland and has worked as an organizational consultant focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion. In this conversation, which centers around race and allyship, we talk about hard conversations, dealing with perfectionism, and knowing your shortcomings. Abby and I cover a lot of ground, so without further ado, enjoy our conversation. Abby, so good to see you. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. This is my very first podcast. Yay! (laughs) How does that feel? Oh, both um, exciting and a little bit nervous, but that's okay. I hear that. (laughs) I, um... Yeah, we, we were talking just before this about the conversation we had, I think probably a few weeks ago now. And just from that alone, as we were brainstorming things, we talked for an hour. So clearly there's there's a lot of, of ground we could cover. So I'm excited. <laughs> nice. As a, a lead-in, I'll first ask, um, for those that may not know you, what salient identities uh, do you hold? That's a good question. Um... I am white. I am female. I'm a wife to my husband, Carl, and I'm a sister, a friend, an aunt. I love being an aunt. Um, Don't have any kids. And yeah, I guess from like a work identity standpoint, um, I'm a consultant and I love helping organizations go through organizational change and get to a new place and care for their people and really thoughtful ways. Hmm. I love it. As far as the consulting work you're presently doing, um, I'm curious to hear more what that what that looks like. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting. You caught me a little bit in a transition space. I guess it's a good transition space. Um, yeah. I literally just left my job um, two weeks ago, and I am starting my own venture as an independent consultant. So... I'm now actually a business owner as well. I forgot that as an identity. <laughs> That's awesome. Congrats. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. But um, in terms of like what I do, um, I, from like a discipline standpoint, I work on change management and communications. Um, I infuse a lot of discussions around diversity, equity, and inclusion into operational decisions that organizations make. Um, I think one of my kind of pet peeves is seeing DEI as like a program under HR and feeling like it's so limited and really, you know, those types of things need to be in, infused in everything. So I, I kind of get at it in more of like a backdoor way. I don't say that I'm a DEI consultant, but it's really just a part of like how I do everything. Mm-hmm. And what led you to that work originally? What's that path been for you? 
Oh, that's that's an interesting journey. Um, I feel like actually I got my start as a social worker in Chicago. Um, I feel like one of the threads throughout my whole story is that I just have a deep heart for people. Um, and so it initially got started as a social worker. Um, I worked with guys who were coming out of prison, um, helping them find jobs. And I worked in a drug and alcohol rehab hab center. And I think in a way that just got that kind of set me on a lot of my questions around things like structural racism and the role of poverty in America and just a lot of those big life questions. And I think working in those spaces, you know, you're, you're treating a lot of symptoms and you're seeing really the impacts of a lot of systemic injustice. And of course you could go like, you know, an advocacy route and work on some of those actual systems. Um, but I think one of the things that I found was that workplaces just seem to be a place where more compassion and care is needed. And there's a lot of people in those systems that just totally get overlooked in terms of um, a lot of the things that I care about. So I kind of have just over time oriented my life towards really working in organizational systems. Um, sometimes I say I'm a, I'm a social worker for, you know, corporate workers, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but um, I don't know. I, it's also just dependent on the, the situation. Okay. So you started your journey. Um, you got your degree in social work and you um, worked at a drug and alcohol rehab uh, space in Chicago. And then where did you go from there? What was your next step after that? Yeah. So I worked in Chicago. Um, I, I worked at a drug and alcohol rehab center. That was my first job. And then that actually led me to go to grad school. Um, it was working in that job. I was teaching art in computer classes and working with a population that was almost entirely black men. And it just got me asking a lot of big life questions and realizing I need a lot more information to help me <laughs> sort this stuff out. And grad school was amazing and a revelation. And I felt like it was just so um, informative in just how I view the world and people and the situations that people find themselves in. Um, one of the things that I really liked about my program was that it had both personal intervention, like counseling techniques, a part of it. But then it also had things like community intervention and I had a class on community organizing and what that is. And um, just the idea that you can have different types of interventions for different types of problems was just really helpful to me. And I think now it's kind of interesting, like now thinking through my history, I, I went from a very personal intervention space to a much more systemic intervention space. And after I left Chicago, um, we moved back to Portland, actually at the, it was during the recession of 2008. And we thought, oh, you know, we'll be able to find jobs. The recession hadn't officially been labeled a recession yet. And it was actually a little bit challenging finding jobs, but I ended up um, getting a job working for the city of Portland in communications. And that was partly because I thought that it would be really easy to do some of the same social work work that I had been doing in Chicago and realizing, you know, individual cities have really different priorities around where their funding streams are. And in Chicago, I was working with, you know, criminal justice reform and 
just issues that were very prevalent in Chicago. And I just assumed, oh, these issues are going to be, you know, prevalent in Portland too. And turns out there's there's not a lot of money in Portland for criminal justice reform, <laughs> which is disheartening. But sorry, I'm telling the story in a roundabout way. <laughs> but but um, I ended up working for the city of Portland in an entirely different space. Um, it ended up being internal communications. And I feel like it was a helpful time in seeing just the realities of local government and how how decisions get made, um, just kind of the internal bureaucracy of everything. I think it was both inspiring and, you know, frustrating too. <laughs> but it was it was a great experience. And I actually thought that I would go back into the nonprofit space um, after I left that job. And I did a ton of informational interviews with nonprofit organizations and you know, I want to be using strategic communications and helping you develop partnerships. Um, what kinds of job positions are these types of things? You know, what, what types of jobs normally do these roles? And oftentimes they would say, well, we usually hire a consultant for what you're describing because it's um, just a short-term need. So I ended up just kind of falling into consulting and I got a job with an organization that really focused on people-centered consulting. It was working with corporate clients, which is new for me. And to be honest, I felt a little bit like a corporate sellout from my social work back- background <laughs> when I started working there. Um, but I think that's where I really developed this realization and this ethos of like some of the most vulnerable populations are low-wage workers and like their lives can be you know, improved so much just by the quality of their jobs. And ultimately, you know, it is a systemic intervention, so to speak, you know, if just having a little bit more money or having a little bit more flexibility in your job, um, a little more job satisfaction, it's amazing how that can impact someone's life. Yeah, definitely. And I'm, there's an irony to, you know, you you talked about uh, fearing you became a corporate sellout in your own words. Um, but, but the, the irony, which I think is actually great is that, or the irony that's beautiful in that for me is that like, yes, you were working with, um, shifting towards corporations and organizations. And through that mean, you ended up having a unique and a new opportunity to really help the most marginalized. Like you were just describing folks in, low wage jobs and lacking benefits and healthcare, you know, whatever it was. And so, yeah, like you're saying, the systemic level things are equally important as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard though. I feel like um, one of the things that I found in nonprofits was that there was a real appetite for discussing things like injustice and a lot of the values that I hold dear and it's just interesting when you go into more business spaces, you know, they have a language all their own. <laughs> and a lot of times it really, it's vague and it is meant to, you know, it serves a different purpose. And I feel like sometimes I have to be more, I don't know, not sneaky. That's not exactly the right word, but I have to be more, um, use like influencing skills to help raise some of the flags or the concerns that I see. Yeah. 
I imagine that when you're working with, I mean, to put it generically, folks in power, there is a different language you might use in order to hopefully affect change because you know naturally uh some of these these changes threaten power so how do you what does it look like to be in that space and and navigate those those waters yeah i mean even the term power like that's not a business term <laughs> you use you use terms like influence or position or um your rank you know it it has um it's different connotations to what it means um i think one of the cool things that i really appreciate about this last year is just the level of i would say more honesty of bringing some of the social justice values and vocabulary to a corporate space where things like white supremacy like i mean you would not talk about white supremacy prior to this year like it would be i mean a very unique progressive organization that would be able to have that conversation even though that's the root of like a lot of the equity and inclusion prog- problems that they have you know there's like the the pc way of talking about it <laughs> right and you brought up a good point that I was uh, wanting to go into as well, talking about last summer and the awakening that we had, particularly here in America, around police brutality and structural racism and white supremacy, right? All of these big, problematic, unjust things. How has that impacted this world and this field that you're in? Yeah, I mean, it's... It's weird how the same values that you hold as people, you know, your your personal life is your professional life on on many fronts. And while there might be like overt things that are um, not tolerated in the workplace, like if you hold biased views, it's usually like the subtle stuff that that really is like exclusion or bias. You know, it's not stuff that you can just point out and say that was wrong. Um, it's much more subversive than that. And I think that's where a lot of the conversation, it, it applies so much to the workplace in terms of who's at the table making decisions, whose voices are getting heard. Those are like common complaints, not just in, you know, policing in America and democracy and some of these like very community driven spaces. Um I mean, workplaces have the exact same issues. <laughs> so, yeah, it's mm. very relevant. Yeah, it's it's encouraging to hear that things have shifted, that like you've been saying that you are able to name, I mean, of course, depending on the space you're in, but being able to name something like white supremacy, whereas even a year ago, that looked very different or yeah, being able to have more conversations about like, like true equity. And like you were saying, I that I love the the metaphor of who's at the table, who's having the conversation, who is involved in key decisions, and what's going on here, because I just finished the new Jim Crow recently, I don't know if you've read it. But towards the end, they, uh, Michelle Alexander, the author talks a lot about how diversity tends to be this band-aid thing 
like it becomes watered down and makes it where like as long as there's representation that's all that matters and that's a very kind of surface level outside thing and not not to belittle that like that is good and alongside that we also need you know deeper systemic change so yeah i feel like it comes back to like you know what are you doing with the information that you have are i think it's so interesting how a lot of organizations now are kind of renewing re-upping on their commitments and you know a lot of times that looks like you know feedback what are, what are we what are we doing or what can we do differently and you know polling employees for what what their concerns are and i think kind of the irony is that a lot of this information has been gathered over time like they have the information that they need they just need to start acting on it <laughs> and it's like the courage to like make different decisions rather than safe ones and yeah I, it'll still be a long process there's no there's no quick solution and and i would also say a lot of organizations are not at the place where they're ready to talk about white supremacy it's still danced around for sure mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and in this in this vein that we're talking to i can't help but also think about what it looks like for us to be agents of change within our own circles on local levels. You know, a lot of us um, may not have the same, like we may not be consulting organizations and, and yet we have influence wherever we are, whatever we're doing. So I'm curious for us to talk more about that, like how to have those hard conversations, because that's come up a lot, I think in this last year, like I, there's been a lot of movement towards you know, I've seen a lot of stuff on social media that are calling white folks to like, in some respects where a lot of change can happen is with your family, with your friends, with the people immediately around you. And so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a gnarly one. I feel like in some ways it's easier to uh, speak truth to strangers that you don't know. <laughs> um but yeah, I, I feel like, um, yeah, whether it's politics or religion or, I mean, there's so many fronts where there's just so much tension or, you know, divisive issues that could derail conversations. Um, I think in a way it's just that practicing, that everyday practicing of noticing things, of naming things, um, to use a, a communications uh, concept, like your framing of issues, like the assumptions that you have about why things are the way that they are. Like there's a lot of stuff that is like just built into these conversations that I feel like now is a great opportunity just to kind of like continue unpacking of like, you know, when you say this, like what are some of the assumptions that you have? And leading with those questions to get at some of the underlying the underlying things I think is is key, but it's also just hard. I, I like to use questions as much as possible because I think it helps um, diffuse some of the defensiveness that can come up. But that's also hard when I realize I'm getting triggered in this conversation and I'm not a neutral party in this. <laughs> like I'm passionate and it comes out. Yeah, yeah. A hundred percent. And I, I, that posture of questioning, like I, I'm completely with you. It's, 
it's a much more effective way, I think, to not trigger folks and make them defensive. And as someone who might be, you know, trying to engage these, that can be so, so hard. That can be so hard when all you want to do is yell at somebody and tell them why what they're saying or whatever is wrong, you know. But yeah, that that asking questions piece feels very important. And I think we all could do a lot better at that, get a lot better at that. Yeah. I, I love, I feel like it's actually like an art, like you, you, you get better at it over time, you know, how, how to ask a question or just the openness of the question, ones that are not kind of the, you know, the straw man arguments that feel like you're kind of aiming towards a goal with this question, as opposed to just genuinely being curious and letting them share their thoughts. I think it's also hard to sometimes want to engage and let them be heard when you just so fundamentally disagree with what their views are. I've definitely had that challenge, you know, recognizing like I want to have compassion for where they're at because I was probably there at some point and just feeling so frustrated of like, you can't see anything else. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, yeah, it's it's a ha, having those conversations. I think takes so much humility because I, I think the other thing too that that especially like white folks and white folks trying to be allies that we can get caught up caught up in is thinking like we're set, like we we're, we're allies. We got it down. We're doing it perfectly. We know it all. Boom, 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 and. You know, for, for folks that I know we've both read, read White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, and she says that right off the bat. She's like, white progressive folks can be some of the hardest to crack because we think we're set. And so that's where humility comes to mind for me. We have to, if we truly want to be allies and agents of change, we need to be honest with ourselves that we're going to keep making mistakes. We're going to fuck it up sometimes. And have those racist moments and the best thing we can do is catch them and, and correct them and try to move forward. Yeah. Honestly, I feel like that's like an art too of like the recovery apology part of like those hard conversations. I feel like we just don't do it well. <laughs> we try to avoid it at all costs. And I almost wonder if there's like more of an embracing of just how can we learn through, you know, whatever this tension is that we're having right now, but being able to, yeah, just be, have compassion for each other. Hmm. And that, that brings up something that was brought to my attention recently, but this notion of what I'm going to call white perfectionism. When I first heard that, <laughs> that, that perfectionism stems from white supremacy in this culture, my mind was so blown and it makes complete sense to me. So like, what would you, I know that neither of us have all the answers, but what might be a good response to that? Like we've talked about being gracious to ourselves and to each other, but how do we lean into that practice of, of not giving, or I want to put this in a positive way, embracing our imperfectionism. Maybe I'll put mm -hmm. it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's a good question. I feel like um, it could be great even just to ask each other 
more where we're wanting to learn and where we're trying to grow, you know, where are places that you feel like you're not getting it right and you want to do better. I think it's hard for us to talk about negative things. Like we always want to put a positive spin on things or, or to talk about the lesson learned after it's learned <laughs> rather than in the moment and just being, I don't know, more accepting of the messy of we, we do not have things figured out. We are very much in the middle of it. And I think for me, one of, um, one of the things that, and it actually comes from, uh, my relationship with Carl, my husband, both of us realize that we're sometimes really internal processors that we like to kind of digest our thoughts before we talk about it with someone else. And we realize that in a marriage that can be really frustrating and lead to a lot of miscommunication if we're waiting to have that conversation because we're still in process. And I think it's more of like a, an intentional step of being like, I do not know what I'm feeling. I'm feeling big emotions right now, <laughs> but I don't even know why I'm feeling them. And just starting to generate like more conversational habits around being okay with that and having other people, you know, be okay with that. I feel like sometimes people just instantly go into problem solving mode and they want to help you. And it's like, no, just listen, just hold it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's two sides of the same coin, I think, where like, for the person sharing, leaning into vulnerability and not having it all figured out. And then for the other person, rather than rushing into problem solving, to paraphrase what you just said, to, to, to listen and to really be present to what's being shared. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. I feel like I have certain friends and people in my life that I can do that with. And I know that they're going to hold my messiness and they're going to ask questions. And it's just interesting to know I have relationships that I don't feel that comfort with. And I guess it's maybe an encouragement for all of us to be safe people. And, and what, what do we want in other people, you know, when we have our messy moments and how do we be that for each other? Mm -hmm. Can I ask a vulnerable question. Yeah, yeah, go for it. <laughs> um, regarding uh, your experience in uh, consulting work, what has been one of the harder moments you've experienced as you've worked with organizations? Oh, that is a good question. Um, I think the harder moments for me, I think, I think my learning edge is more about speaking up and saying more um, when I see things that I don't agree with. And I feel like my definite, like I have some definite regret moments where there were things that were said in conversations that were either producing harm in the moment or they were just fundamentally like bad decisions that were made that I look back and I pick myself of like, that was an opportunity that I completely lacked courage and slipped by, you know? Mm -hmm. And how, how did you bounce back, back from that? How do you respond to that kind of situation? I think sometimes you almost, I think that that's in a way where the learning happens of like, you almost have to know where your limits are or know where your traps are for me. Like when, 
when, when do I say silent, you know, and to know that about myself so that then I can be on the lookout for it in the future, kind of knowing your tendencies. Yeah. So rather than like wallowing in shame or self-pity because we messed up, we can learn from it and try to do better next time. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like there's both like the, I don't know, there's so many things that you could like kick yourself for or regrets. And I just don't want to live that way, especially at, at that point. It's past. <laughs> it's in the past, you know. Just move on. Exactly. Apologize when needed and move forward. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to also highlight what we were talking about before this interview about friendships. And especially for for you and I, where, you know, we are in a very white dominant city, um, white majority city. And again, like we, so the hardship in that being, we want to be proponents of change and, and of equity. And, and, you know, part of that involves getting to know folks that are not like us and we don't want to tokenize people. And, and that's a, that feels like a very fine line to walk. And so I'm curious for you, especially coming from Chicago, cause you had said you're, I mean, just by being in Chicago, you were in a much more diverse space. And then you moved across the country. And Portland is very different than Chicago. So what has it been like for you to navigate that transition, particularly around relationships? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I grew up in Portland. And I would never have named Portland as white. Like, that was my own, you know, blindness to the reality. And... I wouldn't have even labeled Chicago as uber diverse, you know, initially, like it, it just feels like a big city and everything is so different. But yeah, I think it was like more of the culture shock moving back to Portland after having just so much more richness of diversity and friendships in my life and just realizing, wow, <laughs> it's so white here. Um, I think some of it, at least for me, were some of the circles, like you think of like, just the types of places where I was hanging out. Like I worked in nonprofits, like with criminal justice reform, like there were a lot of people of color, you know, colleagues and people that I just rubbed shoulders with all the time. I was also really big into salsa dancing when I lived in Chicago. And that was like a super international community. And then moving to Portland, it's like, all right, now I work in city government, very white. <laughs> And, you know, at the time I was living in Milwaukee. So it's just, I feel like it, it's, some, it's somewhat circumstantial, but it's also, I think what, one of my takeaways was that I just have to be more intentional about it and either thinking through how am I changing where I'm situated? You know, how do I change my own places that I hang out? Where do I, you know... I don't know. It's not even so simple as like, where do I eat for like restaurants or that kind of thing, but more like, where are my communities, you know, and trying to figure out, are there ways that I could, you know, in a way, go to where other people are so that those friendships naturally develop. Because I agree, I, I struggle with kind of the tokenizing aspect of 
seeking people out. <laughs> that just feels weird. <laughs> but I'm also like not doing my part if I am just staying in white circles all the time, you know, like I have a responsibility, like I'm not, you know, I, I don't get a pass either. Right. Yeah. And we naturally gravitate. I mean, as human beings, we naturally gravitate towards those that are similar to us. So even in that vein alone, there's a like evolutionary human tendency to combat and work against. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. I think one of the other things that I've kind of noticed about myself is that when I'm really busy at work or when I have a lot of other stuff going on in life, I get pretty protective of my time and who I spend time with and where I spend my time. And I think that that's also something for me personally that I want to create more space in my time, in my life, just so that I have time to, you know, explore random friendships that I might not otherwise make time for. Go down rabbit trails on social media and discover new authors. You know, I just feel like there's, sometimes it's like the ordering of our time that breeds these outcomes too. Right. Yeah. And like with that, like maybe different interests as well and like pursuing new things. Like you, you mentioned salsa dancing in Chicago. I mean, I'm sure there's a wide assortment of things, uh, you know, communities you could find aligned with different interests that will give you, yeah, like you'll find more diverse uh, community. So what has been one of the greatest joys and highlights for you in the work that you do? Hmm. I love it when people just get an aha moment around something that they didn't realize before, you know, whether it's learning a piece of history or realizing something about themselves, or I feel like it's fun to be a part of other people's journeys in that way. Mm -hmm. Is there a particular moment that, that comes to mind? Well, I will say, um, even just by me leaving my job um, a couple weeks ago, it was nice as a part of my, I had led kind of a, a series of like a group at work around looking at different identities and equity and inclusion and just like learning how to have hard conversations together. And um, it was pretty popular. A lot of people participated, but you never really know like what people are getting out of those conversations. Um, I don't really know where people are on a lot of these issues when they join a conversation. You know, you have like your professional identity and you just, I feel like I don't want to make assumptions about anyone's thoughts on these things. But it was really encouraging when I left then to get a lot of notes from people um, around how they appreciated those conversations and in a way how it prepared them for having conversations with their family around George Floyd stuff this last summer. And I feel like once you're, once you've been a part of some that go really well, <laughs> it gives you hope that, okay, we can, we can do this and maybe gives you a little courage to lean into hard conversations in a new space. Mm. It sounds like it's this ripple effect too, where like one conversation inspires whoever involved to speak up and then they inspire folks and it it ripples out into communities 
Would you say that that feels true? Yeah. Yeah. I think more than anything, it prompts new thinking. And sometimes that doesn't always translate into action. And I think that's sometimes the part that's hard to measure um, in terms of impact. But I think a lot of these, especially topics like race, like you just percolate it. You just, it just percolates in your mind for a while. And sometimes you don't even realize your own thoughts or heart are changing on something until something happens, you know, months later and you realize, oh, you know, I've, I'm in a different place. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Hmm. And again, I'm reminded of, you know, what we were talking about earlier, like this, or I think we said it earlier, <laughs> but like the, the balance between not giving in to like capitalism and performative allyship, you know, and so taking the time to rest and to let these things marinate and, and at the same time being moved to action, like you don't want to stay there forever. And maybe that's the difference um, is it's not so much the thing itself, but like the timing, if that makes sense. So rather than reflecting for years on end, like, and, and also these things will weave in with each other too. They'll be interwoven, you know, like we reflect and we do and we reflect and we do. And I'm sure you, you get that a lot, especially with your um, background, both from your work and in your social work stuff as well. Like it's a both and with these things. Yeah. I mean, I tell everyone, like, this is lifelong learning. Like, you never read a book and feel like you're just transformed and a different person. It's like, over time that that stuff sinks in and you realize how it applies or whatever, like you're always growing, especially in this space. Mm -hmm. Yes. And like you said earlier, continually giving ourselves grace. I think it's hard, especially... I don't know. Maybe it was just like during COVID when things have been so restrictive, but there's this like desire for action and desire of like, I just want to like get in the game in a new way, like as an ally, like, how do I do that? And I, I think I just kind of come back to people and say, it's not about like some big, you know, community service activity. Like you get in the game by like having these conversations and by speaking up in the moment, like, I don't know, it's, it's less about like an identity as an ally as it is just the everyday, you know, when you see opportunities, you take them. <laughs> yeah. And I think too, within that, there's this piece of like, I definitely think community service can have its place and, and be helpful. I do think it also appeases our ego a bit. Like it makes us feel like, oh, look, I did something. I'm good. And so, yeah, again, like we want to be careful with like what is really motivating us and, and where is change really happening, you know? And again, not to not to downplay community work because that is very important and needed. But I think at the same time, yeah, we need, we can take time to reflect and, you know, you brought up having those conversations with people in your life. Those aren't sexy moments. Those aren't necessarily public for everyone to see. You might not necessarily feel better afterwards as you might after a service project, but but it's just as important, you know, so. I feel like that's where different people have different areas that they want to or need to grow too. And so mm. I... 
I would like turn it back on like individuals and say like, where do you feel like you are lacking? Like maybe not lacking, but like, that's not the right word. Like what's hard for you about this, you know, about being an ally? Like, where do you feel like you hesitate or don't want to do something, you know, for people who've never been to a protest, like this summer, like go to a protest, see what it's like, see like what your body physically experiences by doing that and get a taste for like what this is like. (laughs) I feel like that's a really valuable experience, not in a, you know, performative allyship way, but like for your own personal learning of what this means to you. Mm hmm. Yeah. And there, there's so many different things we can do. So even if, yeah, I, I imagine if we all took that step to not that there will just be one thing, but to find those things that, you know, are suited to us and effective ways to engage, then that will make a, a systemic impact that will that will change things. Absolutely. Yeah. Oftentimes, like people will talk about, um, you know, using like more of a strengths based approach of like whatever you're naturally good at, use that in in your allyship work, you know, if you have skills as listening, or if you have skills as writing, or maybe it's not skills, maybe it's just like natural avenues of life, you know, I'm in this work environment or this industry. I feel like there's, there's definite um, momentum in doing things that you're already doing rather than trying to reach for something that feels really difficult and hard. Yeah, definitely. Like we all have influence already (laughs) to use that word. And so we can, yeah, use what we've already been given to, to engage. Yeah. And that'll feel more natural to you too. It doesn't, I feel like that's where it's not, um, I don't know. It's still based on your natural wiring. Yeah. Hmm. I did want to also touch on, um, as we near the end of this here, self-care, how to rest and how to care, how to care for ourselves because affecting change, engaging in community work, systems, organizations, wherever we are, you know, like it's exhausting and rest is important too. Um, so in your own experience and the things you've learned so far, what are, what are some things that you've found to be effective ways of, of resting? Yeah, I definitely am like a strong community proponent, <laughs> like your own relationships, um, are like, at least for me, like when I think about things that are life-giving to me, oftentimes it's other people, their encouragement, helping me process hard things, you know, having good friends is is such a huge thing. I also realized for my work, especially that, um, well, I have two thoughts. One, on that community standpoint, like there's a level of like venting that you have to do sometimes just on like, I can't believe this happened <laughs> and being able to get it out. <laughs> and again, not have anyone like problem solve it for you, but just like be witness to your emotion and experience. And I feel like I need that for myself, you know, and Bless his heart, Carl gets way more stories of like my work life than I'm sure he likes. (laughs) But, um, you know, just having people in your life that can be that 
And then for me, another thing is that sometimes I can get really analytical on like the thinking side of my work, especially like my work is pretty detail oriented. And um, I like things that can just fully like turn off that side of my brain and turn on the right side of my brain. So I do abstract painting as a hobby and I find like something that brings me joy is like just mixing paint colors. Like I could do that for like hours on end and it's not like exciting, but um, there's just something really relaxing about not thinking and using other creative outlets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely hear that, especially nowadays where we are so, well, especially in the pandemic, we're on technology all the time. It's so good to use our hands and the other side of our brain sometimes. So yeah, I'm also a big outdoor enthusiast. I do a lot of walking and hiking and running and swimming in the summertime. I love swimming. Yeah. Yes. Good thing the weather's warming up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's almost spring as we speak. So yeah. Uh, So good. Um, Are you ready for the speed round? Closing questions? Yeah. Kind of funny. The first one you kind of already answered, um, but what sustains you when things get hard? Are there other things you'd like to add? No, I think I'm good. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah. I know we talked about a moment of joy in your work, um, but personally, what's a moment of joy that you recently experienced? Hmm. Let's see. I will say something related to painting. Um, I've kind of started, I had this idea for a painting series this summer around, like spring and summer around growth that's come out of hard times. And that was inspired by a painting that I did for my sister in February. That's awesome. Yeah. And then finally, last question. uh, Is there anything you're watching, reading, or listening to these days that has been exciting for you? (laughs) I got a Disney Plus subscription for Christmas. So we've been (laughs) watching way more TV than we normally have been. Actually, we just watched uh, Hamilton um, nice. on Disney Plus, which I definitely recommend if you've never mm-hmm. seen that. It's amazing and thought provoking. We've also been watching this series, um, The Politician, on Netflix. I which is love like an that interesting, show. Yes, <laughs> a little bit of satire on um, the state of politics. And yeah, let me think. Oh. It, I mean, this is totally like on the topic of racism, but um, an upcoming book that I want to read, I just read a book review for it, is called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together by Heather McGee. And it really looks at, you know, we think of kind of the moral obligation around racism as a motivating factor, but there's just such like blatant community and economic impacts too that impact all of us you know, white people just as much, if not more, <laughs> that um, just make a, a different kind of case for yeah this work. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you for, for doing this today. This was, this yeah. was fun. Yeah. It's good talking thanks to you for, again. Thanks for uh, going with my ramblings. I can get kind of long in my stories. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was great. Um, before we go, where can people follow you, contact you, find your work? Um, yeah, you can look me up. I'm, uh, Abby Kopic on LinkedIn and I'm going to have a new website for my business. Once I get it started, I've bought the domain Abby Kopic Consulting. So look for a website awesome. in the next few months. 
Very cool. And we'll put that all in the show notes. So, <laughs> oh, so good. Thanks again, Abby. Um, this was such a good conversation and I'm excited to keep having these. I hope to see yeah. you soon. I hope that yeah. we can be together in person again soon. Great. Thanks. Yeah. Full disclosure, when Abby and I finished recording, we weren't so sure our conversation flowed in the way that we wanted. We considered re-recording, but then we realized the irony of giving into perfectionism after the conversation we'd just had. If we wanted to practice what we just preached, which we did and we do, it would mean leaning into the messy, embracing imperfection, and risk-making mistakes. And now I'm speaking to fellow white folks. We're going to mess up when it comes to topics of race and racism. We'll likely say the wrong thing, do something hurtful, and as Abby and I talked about, the best thing we can do is apologize right away, make amends, and move on. So as I wrap up this week's episode, may I encourage you to embrace not getting it right. Do your best. Keep working for change in your own spheres of influence, and continue having the necessary conversations with those around you. Until next time, take care, friends. This podcast wouldn't be possible without my incredible team. The theme music was made by Braden Pontoli. The logo was co-created by Kari Gale and John File. The promo posts were also made by John File. Braden, Kari, and John, thank you. I seriously couldn't do it without y'all. Oh, and one more thing before we go. If you're listening and want to support the podcast, you can leave a rating, review, or share the podcast on your social media. You can find it on Instagram at beautifultensionpod. Anything helps, and I truly appreciate your support.